Well, let's resume our study in the life of Elisha today. Uh, we haven't looked at that since last year, so that was a long time ago. Just uh, 2 Kings chapter 6 this morning. Just as a reminder, in chapter 5, we learned how God cleansed Naaman of his leprosy. When Naaman humbled himself and followed the instructions that God gave him through the prophet Elisha to wash seven times in that uh, muddy Jordan River, he was miraculously healed of his disease, his leprosy. We also saw in that same chapter 5 how that Elisha's servant became a leper. His greed motivated him to ask for those, uh, that change of garments and some silver. Um, he followed Naaman and he lied that, uh, uh, that two men had come to the school of the prophets and they were in need. And then he lied to Elisha when he, Elisha said, where have you been? And he said, I didn't go anyplace. And God brought the leprosy of Gehazi onto him and his, or God brought the leprosy of Naaman onto Gehazi and to all of his descendants. So today we'll learn uh, two lessons, uh, or lessons in trust about God from two events, a lost axe head and war plans that are revealed. How can we trust God more as they trusted him then? So the title of the message, Trusting God in Difficult Circumstances. I don't know what you're going through right now. I know some of you. And, uh, but God knows that we'll all face some trying circumstances at times. And in those times, he wants us to turn to him and have a, a confident trust in who he is and what he will do for us. So trusting God in difficult circumstances. First, the first narrative of the story in chapter 6 goes from verse 1 through verse 7. And it's about an axe head that's restored. Now some have come up with some amazing uh, sermons on this text. I was listening to some of them. One pastor preached, why it's not good to borrow. <laughs> some people said, I'm serious, uh, how to have a sharp edge in your service for Christ. I even heard a message about uh, fighting against strict rules that Christians try to enforce. From verse 1, the place is too straight for us. As we come to a passage like this in the Old Testament, I believe it's best to study it as we did in the, the story of the, the stew that the prophets brought all their gourds together and one brought a poison gourd and uh, the Lord healed that stew. Uh, also the salt that was added to the water to make it drinkable. These were miracles that God did primarily for the purpose of reinforcing his power displayed through his prophet. It validated the message of the prophet, validated who God was and what he was saying, but it also uh, helped those who were in need. So just those basic, simple truths that we find from those, and let's not read too deeply into the, into the lesson. We'll learn about God. We'll learn how to trust him. He has not changed at all since he did these miracles in the Old Testament. And the God that you know is the God that Elisha knew. And that should help us to trust him. As we come to verses 1 and 2, we find the prophets that were involved in a building program. And the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha, Behold, now the place where we dwell with thee is too straight for us. Let us go, we pray thee, unto Jordan, and take thence every man a beam, and let us make us a place there where we may dwell. 
And he answered, Go ye. So here is the school of the prophets, and they are, they are getting uh, new uh, students that are there. New prophets are coming. We read before about the three places where they met. Uh, they met at, at Bethel, as one of the places of the school of the prophets in 2 Kings 2.3. Uh, they met in Jericho, 2 Kings 2.5 uh, and, and 2.15-18. And they also met in Gilgal, in 2 Kings 4.38. This particular school of the prophets that we're reading about in chapter 6 is probably the one at Jericho, since they were closest to the Jordan River uh, where they decided to build. These prophets, uh, or these schools, were not monastic. They weren't monasteries as we would think of them today, places where monks take vows of celibacy or vows of poverty. Uh, some of these men were married. We studied in chapter 4 how that God miraculously provided for the, the widow and uh, who was in danger of having to uh, send her two sons into indentured uh, work uh, when she became a widow. So there were, some of them were married. This was a place where men were trained to be prophets of God. And this was a time in Israel's history where there were a lot of problems in the nation. They were being ruled by evil kings. Joram was the king of Israel at this time, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. It's a divided kingdom. And Joram was the second son of Ahab. His mother was Jezebel. And he removed one of his father's idols, but he still allowed Baal worship in the nation of Israel. It continued. Jehoshaphat was ruling in Judah. Now, he was a, a good king, but Things ended poorly in his reign. The people returned to the pagan practices under his son, Jehoram. And so, here are the sons of the prophets. They were, they were following the prophet, Elijah, at this time. They were concerned about the, the spiritual and moral decline of Israel. And so, they wanted to know more about who God was. They wanted to, to prophesy in his name. And a, a decision like that was not only costly, as many of them were living in poverty, but the, it, it also showed that they were committed to a cause. They were taking a stand that probably others wouldn't understand. We learn in this passage that the School of the Prophets was expanding under Elisha's leadership. Others were joining the ranks to be prophets as well. And the place where they were meeting was too small, too straight, or narrow. Uh, too tight, too crowded. They decided to move near the Jordan River and there build a larger place. In the middle of verse 2, it says, where we may dwell. And so I'm imagining that they lived in this kind of a community where they could learn under the guidance of Elisha. We've seen how sometimes they would share a meal when he looked out and saw that they were all hungry and they couldn't learn when they were hungry, and so they said, well, let's, let's have a, a stew, and they, they brought those things together, those gourds to make a pot for everyone to share. So in that sense, they were, they were eating together. Back in verse 1, so in middle of verse 2, where we may dwell, back in verse 1, where we dwell with thee. He's talking about Elisha here. Elisha traveled to those different schools and would, would stay there as he taught them, would lodge there. So while we might think of this building that they're constructing as maybe a community center, a community building, a classroom, it could have been as simple as a lean-to, but someplace where, where the prophets could, could meet and learn. 
But it also could have been more than one building. It could have been surrounded by other buildings where these families or these prophets would, would lodge, could live. Well, they ran into a problem in verses 3 to 4. And one said, Be content, I pray thee, and go with thy servants. They're talking to Elisha here. And he, Elisha, answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to, the Jordan, to Jordan, they cut down wood. But as one of them was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried and said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. They asked Elisha to come as they chopped wood to use for this building. Now, look closely at verse 1. They said to Elisha, let us go. They're asking permission to go down and, and, and get involved in this building. And, and in verse 2, he says, go ye. Then in verse 3, one says, be content. And when we read that, we don't really grasp what the meaning of that word is, but it's to come willingly, to come by your own decision. He's, a, he's asking Elisha, wouldn't you come along with us? Uh, be content, I pray thee, and go with thy servants. And at the end of verse 3, we see his answer, I will go. These prophets were industrious. They were poor, so they couldn't ask someone else or pay someone else to do the building. But they said, if we all get to pitch into this, we, we can do this. Everybody go out and, and chop down a tree, and we'll use that as a beam for part of the building. So they're working together, each one providing for a, a, a beam for the building. They're working near the Jordan River. Uh, their trees would be flourishing. They would be easy to find because of the water source. And then there's a setback. Um, let me just stop and, and, and remind us of something that's still true for us today. Nothing that took place then, we would say, was just accidental. I mean, losing an axe head, that, that's just something, that's just an accident, isn't it? No, we've said it before, time and time again, God is always in control. He's in control of the little things as well as the big things in your life. So nothing that takes place in your life is accidental. The second lesson is that God can always be trusted. You might not recognize what's going on. This, this servant, this prophet, didn't. He, he said, alas, for it was borrowed. From his perspective, things didn't look that good. But God had a reason for this. And so when there are setbacks in your life, just trust him. Let's look and see what God has in store for them. And, and when your axe head gets lost... Look and see what God has in store for you as well. And you say, well, that's easy to say. You don't know, but God does. And I know that God is good, and he is kind, and he is loving, and he will not bring into your life something that he doesn't, with his grace, give you the, the strength to sustain. When he was felling the tree, the axe head came off and fell into the water. This, remember, took place around the 9th century B.C., the Iron Age came 12 B.C., about 300 years earlier. Maybe axe head uh, construction hadn't reached its perfection yet. So losing the iron head from the wooden handle was something that was common. Even the Old Testament law mentions this problem, especially if that axe head comes off and hits someone. In Deuteronomy 19, verse 5, we read, when a man goeth into the wood and his neighbor to hew wood and his hand fetch a stroke with the axe to cut it down the tree and the head slippeth off 
from the helve and lighteth upon his neighbor, it wouldn't be light, by the way, but hit his neighbor in the head, then that he die, he shall flee unto one of the cities of, of refuge and live. He's talking about the cities of refuge, refuge there where there's an accidental death. So apparently this was something that, that happened, had happened before, was prone to happen. This prophet responded, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. Now if you go into the hardware store today, you'll find axes are relatively cheap and expensive. We might think this is a little strange. Iron tools um, here would have been hard to come by. Not everyone had one. Remember, these students were not wealthy. They were poor. One author said losing a borrowed axe head then would be comparable to wrecking a borrowed car today. Alas. <laughs> yeah. God showed him himself to these prophets that he was kind, that he was also omnipotent, he was powerful, he could help, and he hasn't changed. He's still omnipotent, he is still kind. Verse 6, and the man of God said, where fell it? So this is Elisha, is the man of God here. And he showed him the place, and he cut down a stick and cast it in thither, and the iron did swim. Therefore said he, take it up to thee, and he put out his hand and took it. The plea, alas, master. He, he's voicing this again to Elisha. And as he voiced that, I'm, I'm wondering if they thought to themselves, aren't we glad that we asked Elisha to come along? Because he said, go ye. He was going to send them. But the one who lost the accent, I don't know if he was the one that asked Elisha to come along, or maybe it was a friend of his, but I'm sure he said, thanks for, thanks for bringing him, especially after this all takes place. Elisha said, where did it fall? He cut down a stick, threw it in the water. Not, not the best means of retrieving an axe head that's fallen into the Jordan River. But here, a miraculous thing, it did swim. The iron rose to the surface. It floated, an iron axe head. Now, there's no natural explanation of this story. When a, when a stick is thrown into the, the, the river, the stick is going to float on the surface. The axe head would have been at the bottom. And I've thought, you know, as a young boy, I, I heard this passage, and I'd been in church, and I thought, well, this is how it must have happened. You know, that I could see myself with a stick there trying to fish this axe head out of the water. Maybe they just retrieved it with that long stick. No, the Jordan River at Jericho is deep, and the current is very swift. And secondly, the word cast here means to throw out, to throw down or to throw away. It's releasing your grasp of this stick. It would have been like threading a needle three feet away with the wind blowing. Um, Jameson Fawcett and Brown said, there were 1,000 chances to one against the stick falling into the hole of the axe head. That is, if, if they had thrown it and it made it all the way down to the bottom of this swift-flowing river and landed right in the axe head itself and then somehow floated to the top. So he said, 1,000 to one of that happening, all attempts to account for the recovery of the lost implement on such a theory must be rejected. This was a miracle, and that's why we're reading it today. Elisha told the one who lost it to reach out and take the axe head. Pick it up, the one that's floating there. Reach out and pick it up. 
And the one who cried, alas, for it was borrowed, was the one that Elisha included in the miracle. <laughs> Wouldn't it be, I mean, there it is, go pick it up. Ah, that's the thing that I've been weeping for. I, I, that's, and he included him in that. And we've seen that before. Remember the miracle of the widow's sons? They were the ones that went out to gather all the pots in the neighborhood that they could fill with oil. They didn't know at the time, but... We've, we've seen it before, and Elisha even asked the people at Jericho to bring the salt in a container to cleanse the, the, the brackish or the poisonous water. In this account, there are some wonderful lessons that are, that are true about God that are still true about him today. First of all, just from this last concept of, of helping, God uses us, but he's the one who works the miracle. We've got to remember that in our lives. Everything that happens, God is the one behind it. He's the one who works the miracles. But aren't you glad that he uses us? When you get a chance to, to pass a gospel track out to someone, and they, and they read it, and they, you see them again, and they say, you know, I read that, and I, I prayed that prayer. I trusted Jesus as my Savior. You don't go away saying, boy, I saved that person. No, God gets the glory for every miracle that takes place. But he wants to use us. Secondly, God brings good out of evil. Are you right now in a place of despair? Maybe you were doing the right thing. Here are these prophets. They were building a place where they could meet. This was a good thing, doing the right thing. And all of a sudden, you've been doing something, and you watch as that axe head slips beneath the surface of the water. And you say, I was just doing what was right. Why does this happen to me all the time? You can't undo what happened. But God is still God. He's still omnipotent. He's in control. And he can be trusted. Cry out to him. He might use something that's seemingly tragic, uh, something that's a bad thing in your life, for his glory and for your good. So you'll walk away from that experience saying, boy, God is good. And you can tell other people, of how he was one who could be trusted. God brings good out of evil. Third truth, God cares for his servants. One author, Dillard, writes, This same God watches over and cares for me. If he won't let a prophet lose an axe head, he certainly won't lose me when I put my confidence in him. And he brings out 2 Timothy 1.12, where Paul says, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him, talking about his soul, until that day. God's not going to lose you. A fourth truth, God rules over the laws of nature. He caused something that was metal to float, to iron to float. Nothing's too hard for him. He created the universe. He calmed the sea when he was there with his disciples. He's control of the weather and the winds that obey him. He rules over all the laws of nature. A fifth truth, God is strong when we're weak. And a sixth, he's interested in the minute details of our lives. Lessons from a lost axe head. Next, we come to the story of war plans that are revealed. Here, Elisha is warning the, 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 the king of Israel about the king of Syria and his military movements as he comes into the land. So war plans revealed, verses 8 through 23. Now, 8 through 12, let's look at the advantage 
that Israel had in warfare because of, of God using Elisha to reveal these plans to protect them. Uh, the place where Syria camped to mount a battle was, was avoided by Israel. Um, verses 8 through 10. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent to the king of Israel, saying, Beware that thou pass not such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And the king of Israel sent to the place where the man of God told him and warned him of and saved himself there, not once nor twice. So several times he avoids this uh, confrontation with the enemy as they're coming in from Syria. The Syrian king was probably Ben-Hadad II at this time. The king of Aram, A-R-A-M. Aram is the, the Hebrew designation for the land of Syria. It means heights. They lived in the high tablelands that were northeast of Israel, and so that's why they were called Arams, Aramites, or Syrians. There were times during the days of Elisha where they were at peace with their neighbors, no problems. But here, they're invading the land, they're plundering towns in the border of Israel in these series of, of raids. The king of Syria met with his military officers and discussed the plans of, uh, of attack. And Elisha, here called the man of God, warned the king of Israel, Joram, and so they avoided those places where the enemy camped, where they were preparing for each raid. Notice in verses 11 and 12 now how the king at Syria says somebody is leaking information. Okay? Uh, Therefore the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing, and he called his servants and said unto them, Will ye not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet that is in Israel telleth the king of Israel the words that thou speakest in thy bedchamber. You ever wondered if your place is bugged? <laughs> you know, that's what this king was thinking. You know, how does he know? How would you have been? How would you have liked to have been in that meeting with those military officers? Those servants are called. Someone's being accused of leaking information, and and he's looking around the room, thinking, who could it be? Whom could it be? The report was given that Elisha the prophet was the one who knew all about their plans. The lesson, I think, as we go through here, would be number seven if you're counting, uh, God protects his own. He's not going to allow Israel to be attacked without some kind of a defense. God is defending them. He's protecting them. And that sense of God's protection in our lives has not changed. He is still able to protect you. Since Elisha was the reason for the defeat, the Syrians decide, let's go down and capture him. Verses 13 through 17. Their surveillance was accurate. They had already known that Elisha was the one informing the king. And they found out Elisha lived in a, a city called Dothan. Now Dothan is about 10 miles north of Samaria. Um, verse 13. And he said, go and spy where he is that I may send and fetch him. I'm going to capture him. And it was told him saying, behold, he is in Dothan. A great host came by night. They surrounded the city of Dothan, um, verse 14, Therefore sent he there thither horses and chariots and a great host, and they came by night and compassed the city about. 
And Elisha's servant is the first one to go out in the morning to see what's going on. Verse 15, when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, an host compassed the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, Alas, my master, how shall we do, or what shall we do? That same word, alas, is the one that we saw before in the first part of the chapter. The Hebrew words, uh, letters are A-H-H, and it goes back to that primitive just expression of either surprise or grief, aha. Now, as you think about those two words, alas, I, I put myself there and I said, would I rather say alas because I've lost an axe head or because I had a, a multitude of armies surrounding me when I went out in the morning? And I would, of course, choose the axe head scenario. And you probably would too. But isn't it interesting that God can be trusted in the little things and in the big things? The things that you need help. You cry out, alas, he'll come and help. What was the answer? Fear not, verse 16. He answered, fear not, for they that be with us are, far, are more than they that be with them. And I could hear the servant. No, I, that doesn't do it for me. I, I've talked to people. I, I know what you're going through. God's going to get you through this. No, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't see what I see. And we don't see what God sees often. And the lesson here, lesson eight, is God is greater than the enemies you face. Elisha prayed that the, the Lord would open the eyes of this young man. Verse 17, Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the, mountains, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about Elisha. These were God's armies now that he sees. The truth is recorded in Scripture again and again, both in the Old and the New Testaments, that God is going to be there to help you. David trusted in the God of Israel, and he defeated Goliath with the sling. Gideon trusted God, and he defeated the Midianites with those, those wonderful weapons, a trumpet, a pitcher, and a lamp. 1 John 4.4 4 in the New Testament, we read, Year of God, little children, and have overcome them talking about those who do not confess Christ in that context, have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Do we recognize that? Do we see the onslaughts of Satan and say, boy, we're in trouble? Or do we see the hosts of God? Oh, that God would open the eyes of his church today to see that the armies of God are all around us, Oh, that we would stop focusing on the strength of the enemy and look at the omnipotence of our God. The armies were smitten with blindness in verses 18 through 23 now. Verse 18, Elijah prayed that the enemies would be blinded. They came, and when they came down to him, and I often wonder, why did he wait till they came down before he asked for God to blind them? And I think probably because it would be hard to get them out of the mountains if they couldn't see. But anyway, Elisha prayed unto the Lord and said, Smite this people, I pray thee, with blindness. And he smote them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. There's a contrast here 
between the spiritual sight that Elisha prayed for his servant to have and the blindness that he prays for God to send on his enemies. He prayed when the enemy came down. His prayer was specific, smite them with blindness. And God answered according to the word of Elisha. God answers our prayers. That's lesson 10. God answers prayer. I love reading stories about specific answers to prayer. One that I came across, Dr. Robert Glover tells a story uh, that one Saturday evening, a blacksmith in Ohio sat down for his supper. He was supporting a little girl in India, a mission school there. And on his plate had been placed a letter from that school in India. And he began to read it. And, and he told his wife, I, I can't eat. I've got to go and pray. The letter said that the little girl he was supporting was resisting Christ. And in that resistance was standing in the way of other girls in that, that mission school of accepting him. And so the missionary had written to this blacksmith and he said, if this girl doesn't change, they're going to have to expel her from the school for the sake of the other girls. And so that blacksmith got down on his knees and started praying. Saturday night in Ohio is Sunday morning in India. And on Sunday morning, the, the missionary gathered her class of girls together in Sunday school as usual. And before she got to the lesson, the girl who was causing the problem jumped out of her seat and in tears told the missionary lady that she wanted to be saved. And the other girls were just moved by that. It was so unusual. And one by one, they followed her example and trusted Christ as Savior. Specific, fervent prayer in Ohio was answered in India. We can trust God because he still answers prayer. Elisha led the armies to Samaria. This is, a, this is a real humorous account. I love reading it. Every time I come to it, I, I, I smile. Because here is this mighty army, the enemy of Israel, that's humbled by God. Verses 19 and 20. Elisha said unto them, remember they're blind, This is not the way, neither is this the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom ye seek. The man whom they sought was the one talking to them. But he led them to Samaria, again, 10 miles, blind soldiers with their chariots, with their horses, and, and, and these men are blind, and he's leading them all the way to Samaria. And it came to pass when they were come into Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw. And I'm sure they didn't want to by then, because now they're in Samaria. And behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. They're not in Dothan anymore. Okay? He prayed for his servant's eyes to be opened. He prayed for the Syrians' eyes to be blinded. And now he prays for the Syrians' army to, to be opened again. God answered each prayer. And the king of Israel asked Elisha what he should do. Verse 21. King of Israel said unto Elisha, when he saw them, my father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? Joram called Elisha my father. I think he's talking about the authority that God gave him. He recognized him as someone who was older in walking with God than he was. He recognized that spiritual quality. Joram asked advice of what to do. And I think the repeated question here makes him sound like, I want to do this. I want to smite them. Shall I? <laughs> But he waits to find out what the man of God 
has to say. Elisha told him to feed them instead of killing them, verses 22 and 3. He answered them, Thou shalt not smite them. Wouldst thou smite those whom thou hast taken captive with the sword and with, the, with thy bow? I, I can only imagine it like being a prisoner of war. And you don't just massacre all these people. And so, so what does he do? He says, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And he prepared a great provision for them. And that when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away and they went to their master. This is not always the way that Israel treated their enemies. But here, mercy was shown to those who didn't deserve it. God is like that too, isn't he? Bread and water to nourish Things that sustain life instead of things that take life. And God is patient and he's merciful. And we look around and say, why, why don't you smite them, Lord? And he has something other, better in, in, in store for them. He wants our enemies to come to the knowledge of the truth. He wants them to be saved. Let's not give up on them. The result, verse 23 at the very end, so the bands of Israel came no more into the land of Israel. Again, these bands, these, these raiding, raiding uh, groups of, of Syrians who would come down. Now, when we get to verse 24, we'll notice that Ben-Hadad will bring his entire army against Samaria and surround it. That's the next time that we'll be in the passage. But I hope as you consider these two accounts in the Old Testament, you'll be encouraged. God has not changed. You can trust him. You can trust him in the little things that you face. It might be as something as simple as losing an axe head. And, and as small as it is, you cry, alas, and God will hear you. It might be something as frightening as an army that's surrounding you. There's no way we can get through this one. Trust God. You can trust him. He's still the same as he always has been. You can trust him this morning if you have never taken him as your savior. You can trust him. He died for you on Calvary's cross. Believe him. Accept him. Repent of your sin and turn to him. Trust him for salvation. You can trust him no matter what you're facing right now. The circumstances of life, God is in control and can be, he can be trusted. So whatever it is that you're facing today, would you learn to trust him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage in the Old Testament. We thank you for the truths that are here that teach us about who you are. And I pray that if there's one here today that has not trusted you as their Savior, that today will be the day of salvation. And if there's somebody that's been trying to work things out in their own strength, trying to resolve problems and difficulties and, and things that may be as small or as large as the things we've read about today, I pray that they'll turn it all over to you and trust you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.